me to Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue to work our way through this letter that is meant to be lived and not just believed, it is meant to be fruitful and not just active, and it is meant to be understood and obeyed by every Christ follower in church. So there were not chapters and verses in the Bible for hundreds of years, and often you can see an easy transition. Um, There really is just a continuance of chapter 4. As we come into chapter 5, we have in chapter 1 seen from God's perspective what he did before there even was a creation, before there even was human beings that he planned in advance to, um, to choose us when we choose his son, knowing in advance who that would be, that he would make us to human beings who are holy and blameless in his sight, that he would form a church. And in chapter 2, we are told by Paul, from the place which, which we were drawn, we need to be cautious when we share the gospel with people who are lost because they are no more lost than we were lost. And Paul is going to remind us that in chapter 5, that we were Chapter 2, we were dead, we were disobedient, we were deserving of wrath. That's every human being who will ever live. And there is a need for every human being who will ever live. Paul, in the verses that Terry read, said, I don't live my life for myself, I live it for others that they may be saved. And then he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's how this chapter begins. Let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, Knowing that you know all things in advance, you know before creation who would be in this room today, who would open up your word and hear from you today. You know how it applies specifically, uniquely to each one of us, and you have a plan. Help us to step into that plan today, that the things that we are to apply and learn today would be exactly what we do in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come into chapter 5 of Ephesians, very similar to what Terry read in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This letter written a few years earlier, it's interesting that that letter was written while he was in Ephesus. So I was just thinking to myself, we go to 1 Corinthians a few times in this message, Ephesians, or the the church in Ephesus, would have read 1 Corinthians before Corinth did. Because Paul's writing it in Ephesus. So the, the verses that Terry read that were written years earlier would have been read first by the people in Ephesus. So that's what had a familiar ring to them. In Christ, who forgave you, we end chapter 4. We come into chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So so Paul begins this dialogue, this, as we know it, chapter 5, as be like Christ. We read in chapter 4 last week that we were created to be like God. We are like a a dried seed that you can purchase in a store that is created to be planted, 
to be fertilized, to be watered, and to become a fruitful plant. So we are created in the beginning, in our essence, in the conception in our mother's womb, we were created to be like God. We cannot do that in our own power. We cannot decide, I will just be like God. But we have the promise and the reality that if Christ is our Lord, if he makes the decisions in my life for me, and I simply follow them, that he promises to make us like him. So we follow his example and we look through his lifespan on earth as we knew it, and Christ himself explains to us that he never did anything for himself, that he lived his life for others. Paul followed him closely, so he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that he lived his life for others, that they may be saved. So then he can say by the Holy Spirit, follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. So he begins this letter asking us to follow the example of Christ. So we have this mantra of the entire Bible, this statement. Galatians 5.14, Paul says the entire law, the entire word of God is summed up in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Human beings were created to love their neighbors as themselves. We have sin in the Garden of Eden we now have every human being born in a propensity to sin, carnal body. And we need to be born again. We need to say, Christ, you are my Lord. I am relying on your death, burial, and resurrection and your word to save my life, to leave my life, and to make me like you. And if we are willing to do that in the upper room, at the Last Supper, Jesus is speaking to a group. We, we learn from John and from Luke that, yes, Jesus is in that room. Yes, the 12 are in that room. There's probably more than 12. There are probably other disciples as well. But Satan is in that room. Satan is not, not omnipresent. He is location one only, and he is in that room, and he is trying to disrupt Jesus going to the cross because he knows he will be defeated there. So the Bible tells us in John 13, 27, that when Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas, he says to Judas, do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And verse 27 says, when he did that, Satan entered Judas. Judas was a pretender. He had the offer that they all had, but he didn't want Christ as his Lord. He wanted him as his friend. And Christ never had that position as Lord. So as soon as Judas leaves, he changes love your neighbor as yourself, which is every human being to every human being, to what you have there in your notes. On that night in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So one another is brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister. It is a born-again Christ follower to another born-again Christ follower. 
So love your neighbor as yourself. That's anyone who is your neighbor. Anyone who you come in contact with. But Jesus says the way that they will actually know that you follow me is how you love one another. So when Paul says he lives his life for others, and we start out here that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other, that's the singular command that everything funnels into once you step into a relationship with Christ, that we are to love one another. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, as John elaborates on this there. We read the first nine verses in 1 John 3 last week, where John makes a clear picture that everyone who has this relationship with Christ, everyone, he says in verse 2 and 3, that knows for sure that they will be in heaven one day, that he is coming, that he is going to make us completely like him when he comes. Everyone, verse 3, who does this purifies themselves. And then he goes on to explain in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 that this is the reality of a person who has God living in them. That because God lives in you, change happens. So John is explaining in 1 John that if there's no change, there's no God. But I believe, it doesn't matter if you believe, John will explain. If there is no change, there is no God. God cannot enter a human being and have no change happen. So we are reading, picking up in verse 10 then. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do right, do what is right, is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So we're taking a command from Ephesians 5 to love one another. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, says, I tell you a new command. You are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, now you are to love one another. And if you do this, he says that night, this will be what you are known for as following me. So John is explaining years after Jesus had said that to him in 1 John, that that's actually the litmus test for a Christian. If a person is known for laying down their life, for the ones they follow Christ with, then they know that that person is a Christian. And if a person doesn't do that, it doesn't matter what they say, they are not a child of God. Reading on verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, taking us back to when Jesus gave the command in John chapter 13. We should love one another. John 13, 34. Verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. How do you know you're a Christian? I put others, Romans 12, 10, I am devoted to one another in love and I honor one another above myself. I make decisions not because it's natural to me, not because now that I'm Christian I just automatically do right things, but because I chose Christ as my Lord and he says the way that I follow him is to put the needs of others above myself. And my doing that 
is the proof that I am a Christian, that I have been born again, that I have brought from death to life, because that's how we love God, by loving one another. So verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. We've been born again because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. I love God. I like going to church. I don't get along with Christians. I make my decisions. They make theirs. We talk about the weather. We get along just fine. But we don't really live our lives for each other. John says, well, then you haven't been brought from death to life. You're still living in death. Verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. Paul will be talking about these things in Ephesians 5. No murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know. And there's our Greek word again, gnosko. We'll have a few Greek words again today. Gnosko is the intimacy between a husband and wife that is enclosed in complete privacy. It is experiential. It is not back in verse 14, we know, iota, which is, I understand that this is true. It is, I know gnosko. I intimately have experienced what it means to love others, and I know. I know it's true. How do you know it's true? I've done it. He's proved it. It's true. So verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We just read that in Ephesians 5. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So here's how you know what love is. Well, the, the Greek would be agape. It would be this love where I will lay all of myself out for all of you, not needing a reciprocation, not needing you to do something in bad towards me. I am simply doing what I understand to be the best for you to meet your needs. That's agape. And this is how we know what agape is, by laying our life down for others. We know it intellectually because God says it right here. But that's not the word he uses. The word, Greek word gnosko is I know it intimately, experientially. I've done it. I felt it, it's real, I know. That's how I know. We know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. And if we lay down our lives for others, we know, we know. We understand what agape is. That's how we understand what agape is. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but in acts with actions and in truth. That's a definition of agape there. Not by what you say, not by what you feel, but what you do and what is true. Um, turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. So Paul gives us this standard that he's been giving us. The standard is Christ. How do you love people? If you love people like Christ loves people, then you know. Then you've been brought from death to life. Then you're born again. Then all of his promises are yours. 
Jesus never did anything for himself. We're not that perfect. We're not God. But when we choose continually to do that, then we know what God's love is like. God's love can never originate in me, even as a Christ follower. What happens is the fruit from the Spirit can go through me so that I can give the love of Christ to someone else. And when I do that, it benefits me. I know, I know in my heart, I grow and I become more like Christ. Reading on in Ephesians 5, verse 3. And he's talking about purity now. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. What we were, we can't be anymore. Verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For, or excuse me, for of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath, Romans 1.18, comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So you have there in your notes, it is our responsibility to keep the world out of the church. So, who do we invite into the church? Everyone. Every person. Well, what if they're an atheist? Invite them in. What if they're transgender? Invite them in. What if they're against God? Invite them in. But the church cannot be the world to them. The church cannot become the world. So if you look at the United States of America and see what the church has become. In 1980, people like Bill Shuler and others started this um, seeker movement in the church. And if you read the language from... The, the founders of the Seeker Church, they will tell you straight out, we tried to make the church more like the world so that the world would accept the church. Paul and John say, don't do that. Bring them into the church. Love them like Christ would love them. Introduce them to the same person who saved you from all of your sin. Invite them to follow Christ with you but keep the world out of the church. That's actually the, the First Amendment in our Constitution. Google it on your phone sometime. The, the founders established with the amendments from the beginning keep the government and the world out of the church. That the government would never have a position to decide when we would meet or how we would meet or how we would assemble and the government violated that just a couple of years ago, but it's been violated in many other ways. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We go again to that letter that he is writing while he is actually in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. I remember about three decades ago when someone began discipling me, and I thought, I'm going to learn all these tools, I'm going to put them on my tool belt, I'm going to learn new things, and that was true. And he started with Joseph. He said it starts with purity. It starts with 
All of the things that God wants out of your life, you say no to from now on. Joseph was a man who was resolved as a boy. I'm not going to violate God sinfully. And he was tempted in every possible way. He was mistreated in every possible way, and he never did. So Paul is addressing purity in Ephesians 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul is scolding the church in Corinth while he is in Ephesus. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, when you're in a disagreement with someone in the body of Christ, as far as it's your part, stop it, whatever you have to do. If they've done something wrong to you, stop arguing. It's better to be wronged than to desecrate the church. If you've been cheated out of money, let them have it. It's better to be cheated than to say, we're going to use God's house to bicker and to argue about things. Reading on, verse 8, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. These are Christians he's speaking to. Verse 9, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a very simple gospel verse. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that name a little bit later. And by the Spirit of God. So we receive Jesus as Lord. He is then our Savior. And then he becomes our prophet, priest, and king. And the Holy Spirit sets us apart for God. He indwells us and guarantees our inheritance. And Paul simply says in this statement, wrongdoers don't go to heaven. Well, wait a minute. I'm a Christian and I still do things that are wrong. Paul explains that what has to change is our identity. If you are known, um, if you think of some of these sins that he has listed here, it's easy to say, well, that one wasn't me. Or that one wasn't me. But then when he starts talking about wrongdoers and swindlers and deceivers and like, yeah, those were all me. Um, he says, that's what some of you were. So John has told us earlier that we cross from death to life, and we know that we've crossed from death to life because we live our lives for others. That's how we know. That's the only way we can know that we are Christians. How do we know that we haven't? We are still wrongdoers. We are still inclined to do what Jim wants to do and I make my own judgments about those things. And Paul says to those who are professing to be believers that that's what you were. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 5. I made the statement that we are to keep the world out of the church while we invite people from the world into the church. We don't invite them into the church to say, whatever you believe is fine. Here's what we believe. Whatever you follow is fine. Here's what we follow. We invite, invite people into the church to say that our understanding is that the Son of God created everything. 
that you see, touch, smell, every molecule in every place was created by the Son of God. And that same Son of God showed you how much that he loves you by hanging on a cross, whether you would follow him or not. And that same Son of God says that if you will repent and make me your Lord, my kingdom, my Father, my heaven, my riches are all yours. But he is the only one to follow. So we invite everyone to that same offer that God has given us. Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians 6, we just read, wrongdoers aren't accepted in God's kingdom. And he is making clear in verse 9 of chapter 5, he's talking about people who say, I'm a Christian. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We read that in Ephesians. We read that in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 10 is important. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with one who claims to be a brother or a sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You are not to judge those, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So this whole letter, we're taking a few verses to try to understand. Paul will explain in his letter to Corinth that when you have a person who says, I'm a follower of Christ, and they are in sin, and they are staying in sin, that you go to them as an individual and say, can, can we look at this together in God's word? Can I come alongside you? Can we make sure that your life and my life is actually following Christ? And there's a progression then. They say, no, just leave me alone. You follow Christ the way you do, I'll follow Christ the way I do. Then Paul would say, okay, take two people with you who agree that what is happening here is not in the Bible, and you have the same presentation. We love you. We are all capable of sin, including me, and we want to walk with you through the Word of God so that we can walk with Him together. Stay away from me. I don't want to hear from the two or the three of you. Then you are to bring them before the leadership in the church. And it's reconciliation, it's love, and it's coming back together. That is always the goal. And if the person's fixed position is, I'm a Christian too, and I can live however I want, then you have to expel them from the church. Because it's not my church. It's his. So the goal, 100% of the time, is reconciliation. We're going through something here. James says, blessed is anyone who brings a brother back. If you bring me back, or if I bring you back, or we bring each other back, that's always the goal. But we can't tell the world Christians are people who do whatever they want to do. Because then we misrepresent the one that we are following. So ultimately, there is no choice but to say, if you're not going to be a Christian, then don't call yourself a Christian here. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. 
In 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, John is explaining that if you come into the church and you love the world, that's natural. But if you stay in the church and love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So there needs to be a time where we choose Christ over the world. Not perfection over imperfection, but him as Lord rather than me and rather than the world. So it's not perfection he's seeking, but it is authenticity that we genuinely have him as our answer to every question. Verse 8 of Ephesians 5. For you were once in darkness. Me? Yes, you, I, everyone. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But now you are the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So Paul says you, you transition from representing yourself to representing Christ. You transition from you were once in darkness. I don't know what to follow. I will do what I want to do. Whatever the world does that's appealing to me, that's what I will do. You transition from that. You were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. So I haven't gone from representing me in the world to representing me in the church. I've gone from representing me in the world to representing Christ. So he is the standard. How should I live? We started this chapter, follow the example of God. So God, the person, Jesus Christ, came to earth and lived his life loving others. If I do that, Jesus says on the night he was betrayed, they'll know that you follow me. That's the light of the Lord that Paul is teaching us. If you're saying, I am a Christian, I am in the church, this is my identity, then I realize I represent Jesus Christ everywhere I go and everything I do. I am the light of the Lord, and I'm commanded, verse 8, to live as children of the light. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. There's other verses in your note there. We won't look at all of them. John 3, 16, we're familiar with, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then he answers the question, who does God condemn in the next verse? So God does not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There will be no one in hell that Jesus says, you are to go to hell. The only people in hell will be people that reject God's offer. Even his offer before you see a Bible that he is God, that he has created things. So God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then he says in verse 18 that everyone who believes in him is not condemned. But everyone who does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. They stand condemned because they're a sinner? No, we'd all be condemned. 
They stand condemned because they lived in a dark part of the world? No, that's all of us. They stand condemned because they refuse to believe in the name of God's one and only Son. It's not hard, but it's narrow. It's one person. It's Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. Everything God has is mine. I want him as my Savior, but not my Lord. Then I can't have him as either. So John 3, 19, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world as a person. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Then he says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But, verse 21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So everyone who chooses Christ, 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this reality purifies themselves. Everyone who chooses Christ steps into the light and people can observe the changes. If they don't want those changes, they remain in darkness by their choice and not by God's. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Isn't that comforting? It doesn't say you'll never walk through trials. It doesn't say you'll never have pain. But wherever darkness is, you'll never be. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Can a Christian walk in darkness? Not not if they're following Jesus. It's impossible. So he's speaking to the church, or the Jews, in the book of Hebrews, and he's talking about their relationship with God, and we pick it up in chapter 10 and verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, we just read in Ephesians 5, to find his will, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, in other words, he says, and he's going to Habakkuk 2.4, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So, we often hear statements and, and we hear in prayer time that, God, I'm so grateful that you love me no matter what I do. That is a true statement that is never applied in Scripture. So it is true that God loves me if I never follow him. It is true that when he hung on the cross, he hung there for everyone. It is true that if I'm obedient in the church or disobedient, he loves me, but it's... it's improperly applied. It says in these verses here, and it says in many other places, that I am Jesus' friend when I do what he commands. Don't you think that's a good thing? An important thing. That if I say Jesus, for example, that just doesn't look like me or sound like me what you're asking me to do, but you know what? I'm going to do it for you. 
you're my friend. Paul says here, you must persevere. You must hang in there. And if you do, you will receive all the things that he has promised. Verse 39, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Um, turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're headed to 1 John again, but there's an important verse here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, there's so much um, in this to understand that the power of God goes with us everywhere we go, that the grace of God, the, the seed of God, the divine nature of God lives in us, that there will never be anything that God asks us to do that we don't have the power to do because it's already there waiting. There will be nothing that God ever asks us to do that won't change us to be more like Christ if we do it. There is nothing that God will ever ask us to do that will benefit him and not me. Those are all promises that are good promises. Peter is trying to explain the authority of the word of God in this chapter. And he goes back to when Peter, James, and John went up on a mountain and Jesus, the human being, God, walking the earth, turns into in front of them the glorious king of kings returning to earth at the second coming. And then Peter says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's saying a lot of things there. One of the things he is saying is that the transfiguration and what he's showing us right there is written down in the book of Zechariah and other places. And when he did it, we realize the authority of those scriptures. And he's also saying to us that even though we saw him and what he did, that the scriptures are even more reliable than that. And then he is saying that you will do well to look into these scriptures, to take Ephesians 5 and say this isn't just good ideas, this isn't for the church in general, this is instructions for me personally, and if I will obey them, it will be like a light shining in a dark place. How many of you know the world we live in is dark? Needs a light. Needs someone to say, I love people, I follow Christ, He loves you, He died for you, won't you follow Him? Peter says that if you, you take hold of the Scriptures like, this is for me, I will do this, you will become a light in a dark place. It's kind of like when they take you through Merrimack Caverns or whatever and they turn all the lights off and they light a match. That's the picture that Peter is giving us. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. John 8, 12, he says, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is a message we have heard from the beginning and declare to you. John 8, 12, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. The world is dark, the things we see are dark, but if we choose to walk with Christ, and we continue to walk with Christ, we're walking in the light nonstop. 
there is no darkness at all. How do we know when Satan fell? How do we know when Lucifer became Satan? Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Where'd the darkness come from? Can't come from God. In him there is no darkness at all. That's when Satan fell between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And he is, John is instructing us in 1 John that as believers we have to choose that light continuously. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. He doesn't just exude light, he just can't emit it, he is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we're going to have six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, five verses in a row that all begin with if. In other words, it's possible for me to choose to do this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the one another there is God the Father, God the Son, and me. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If I'm honest with God about who I am and what I do, he will cleanse me from everything. So we are born again by making him Lord. When he is my Lord, I can still walk in darkness. I can still say, I know I can be like Jonah and say, he wants me to go that direction, I'm going this direction. Jonah is still a child of God, but he's walking in darkness and ends up in a dark place because of it. So as a believer, I can say, because I still have free will, I know what he wants me to do today, I need a break. I need to take care of some things. And I walk in darkness, and I become vulnerable to things I would never be vulnerable in the light. And finally, he says, if we're confessed, if we're honest, Lord, I know I'm your child. I'm aware that I've been a lousy husband today. I'm aware that my mind thought about things that Quite honestly, as a Christian, I can't believe it goes there. I'm laying those things before you. Confessing in the scripture means saying what he says about it is true. I'm agreeing with you, God. I need to repent. I need to come back into fellowship with you. Listen to that verse 9. If I will come before him in honesty about the things that I know that are wrong, he will wash me of everything. If I know of ten sins in my day and I confess them to God and there's actually 150, he cleanses them all. He's just saying, if you're honest with me about your walk, 
I will cleanse you completely so that you will walk in the light as he is in the light. And then a dark verse, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Confessing is saying what you say about what I do is true. If we claim that we have not sinned, we say what you say about what I have done is not true. We make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Go back to Ephesians 5. As dark as the world is, Paul is explaining to us, we can go out into that world in light. Like a light shining in a dark place. You have there in your notes, under verses 8 through 13, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You can actually send glory up to God from the people around you by them seeing what you're doing when you follow Christ. We can enhance the glory that goes to God the Father by doing the things that we're told to do in following Christ. Verse 14, this is what is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. So there's multiple verses that bring this together. I think he's primarily quoting Isaiah 60 and verse 1, where he's speaking to Israel, and Paul's applying that to me, to us, to the church. Wake up. Um, rise from the dead. If you've been crossed from death to life, then act like it, and Christ will shine on you. The, the glories and the blessings and the promises of God that he wants to give us, that he wants to demonstrate to us, that he wants us to have joy instead of happiness, to have peace instead of gratification, to have strength instead of temporary strength. He wants to give us those things. He wants peace that transcends understanding. He wants us to experience what God experiences. That when Jesus walked the earth and he was persecuted and his mother was called a whore and his, his father was thought to be ridiculous and his brothers hated him and we don't even know what his sisters thought about him and in his hometown when he began to preach they tried to kill him and eventually they do kill him and Jesus walked the earth in peace knowing that the promises of God are true knowing that the Father would never have allowed him to experience all of that unless experiencing all of that would bring glory to him. And knowing that before they even chose, 1 Peter 1.20, for Jesus to die, that he thought of everybody in this room and everybody in every other room and decided it's worth it. I'll do it. I'll walk the walk that they could never walk. I'll die the death that they deserve, and I'll give them life. And they realize, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that what a glorious thing that is. How much better peace that is beyond understanding compared to peace of the thing that I want right now. How glorious it is to realize what we were created to be. Um, 
in your notes there. Let's read verses 14 through 16. This is what is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, which is more glorious than anything that I can choose for myself. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And here's the reality we live in, because the days are evil. As Christ followers... We have to, Paul is impressing on us that it's not this hour on Sunday morning that these things are true. It's not when people that we know, we know are watching us. It is 24-7 that when Christians are still humans and they wake up and think, what do I want to eat? What do I want to go? I hope this person doesn't cut me off in traffic. I hope all these things here. And we get to the end of our day and think, what happened today? Paul is saying, be very careful. Every circumstance you're in is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for you to change. It is an opportunity for you to grow. And someone's watching. Um, Crimes are, are found out more today because there are more cameras and more people watching than ever before. Paul is saying, be very careful. Um, as Christ followers, we need to see every circumstance as an opportunity. Verse 17 is an important verse. <clears throat> it's the second time that he has said this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So we come into a relationship with God knowing, first of all, that it's His will that I make His Son Lord. That's my first decision. Jesus, I am choosing you, who is Lord over everything, as Lord over me. And then I step into the Word of God that I learned that from, and I start to see things like Ephesians 5, and I start to understand what my purpose is, and what I was called for, and what I was designed for, and how I am plugged into the church, and what God wants me to do as a father, and a husband, and all of these things. And I begin to understand more and more what His will is. Romans 12, 2 in your notes there, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As human beings, we do what we think. And if we think the word of God in a way that says, okay, as soon as I understand this, I'm going to apply it. And if I do that, it renews my mind. So Paul says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you, individual, will be able to test and approve of his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I start with Jesus, you're my Lord. And Paul is telling us in verse 17 here that Romans 12, 2 tells us, if I keep following him, I'll know the plan for Jim. I start with a plan that's for every human being, make Christ Lord. I come into a realm that is the church. We're going to follow Christ together. And if I keep renewing my mind, I will know specifically what he wants me to do, what I was created for. So Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Goal number one of God never changes. He wants to make me like Jesus. Man or woman, boy or girl, he wants to change me from being like me to being like Christ. And he's explained several times today that if we do that, the world will say something's different. They're following Christ. Goal number two, he's explaining in Ephesians 4 and 5. You need to do this in a church body where you are close enough to each other to survive any storm and you mature together. And he says simply in verse 17 here, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's more in this verse than alcohol. Obviously, alcohol is the example that Paul is giving. But when he says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think as human beings we have a concept that if 75% of me is given to God and 25% is given to the world, then God wins. Three to one. What Paul is explaining here is that we're either filled with the Holy Spirit or we're empty of the Holy Spirit. So he said in the last chapter, about verse 30, I think, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So if we take the word of God, we renew our mind and we do what it says. I don't feel capable. I don't feel up to it. I'm going to do what it says. Then he will renew my mind and he will demonstrate to others. And Jason, you have to sit down for now, okay? So... Paul is explaining to us to do that, to, to live for him. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't give in to this world, which would lead any of us down the wrong path. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does be filled with the Holy Spirit mean? It says that of Peter. It says that of Paul. It means that a person is only focused on what God has planned. It doesn't mean I get more of the Spirit by doing this because all of the divine nature is in me from the beginning. All of the grace that I will ever need, all of the Holy Spirit that will, I will ever need is in me from the beginning. When I listen to this book, if you want to call it that, and do what it says, then I take the only weapon of the Holy Spirit, I apply it, and the Holy Spirit is freed to do what He always wanted to do. So when we find ourselves doing exactly what God wants to do, the Bible describes that as being filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what he wants us to do. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from the heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that name I mentioned earlier, we see that name. It's important in so many reasons, from so many angles, that in English we read the names of God and we think, okay, there's a name, there's a name, there's a name. When we look for a word to say, what does that word mean? We have to go to the original language. So this is the full surname of Jesus Christ is Lord Jesus 
Christ. The Greek words are Kyrios, Jesus, Christos. You don't have to memorize that. The good thing about memorizing it is then you know the word that is written there. Kyrios is sovereign master. So Paul will always say that we receive this person as Kyrios. The relationship only begins, and that's why his name begins, Lord, Kyrios. He is amazing. He died for me. I believe it's true. When I say, you are my Lord, Romans 10, 9, I confess you as my Lord. I'm not just saying that I know who you are. I'm saying, be my Lord. So Kyrios is sovereign ruler over my life. And when I choose him to be that, everything that God has is mine. Then Jesus, or Jesus, is God of salvation. So when I receive him, I acknowledge him as Lord. From now on, wherever I go, whatever I do, you are my Lord. He immediately becomes Jesus, or Jesus which is God of salvation. Once he is my Lord, he is my salvation. Once he is my Lord and he is my salvation, then he is Christos. Christos is anointed prophet, priest, king. So he is prophet. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So he is the word of God to me. He is my prophet because he's my Lord and he's my Savior. He is my prophet. He is my king. He is the ruler of all and he is the ruler of me. And we read a verse today that as the morning star rises in your heart, that's Revelation 19 when this king comes on a white horse to judge the world and set up his kingdom. So he is my prophet he is my priest. What is a priest? He is Melchizedek, the highest priest. He is the person who represents people before the Father. So he is my intercessor. He is my advocate. He is my counselor. He is my representative before God the Father. So Hebrews 7.25, it says that he always lives to intercede for you if you're a Christ follower. So these Greek words, what we have in English as Lord Jesus Christ, Kyrios Jesus Christos, is his full name and it's the order that it comes in. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and you've made that decision, that's all I know. Well, it's a good start because he's everything for you from now on. Well, I want the Savior. I just don't want the Lord. Can't happen. Well, can he be my priest and not necessarily my Lord? No, he can't. Because we receive him as Lord, he immediately is our Savior. He becomes our prophet, priest, and king from now on. He gives us the word of God he represents us before the Father, and he is coming again. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Turn to Psalm 45. 
This would be a good psalm for next week because we're going to see how marriage and the church are pictures of each other according to the Bible. This is a psalm about Christ and a psalm about marriage. don't have time to talk about Jewish weddings and how they are portrayed in Christ. A Jew would understand this psalm better than we would, um, but I'm going to read it. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. He's speaking, oops, I'm in the wrong place. Psalm 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite the verses for the king. We read in Hebrews there, sing psalms and praises and hymns to each other. Um, this is a song of praise of wedding and of the king. So my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword at your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall between your, beneath your feet. And this is what Paul quotes in Christ, in Hebrews, about him. This is about Christ being the creator and about being Almighty God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, this is the Father speaking to the Son, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold ophir. So he is the, Christ is the um, husband of both Israel and the church. So it applies to both. Verse 10, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glory, glorious is the princess with her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. That's how... Paul is telling us to speak to each other about the glorious reality of the husband of the church, who is Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, 
We can do none of this by our power. I'm convinced that from Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 that we can't do it fully effectively as individuals. As Paul writes that we we actually learn how wide and how deep and how high and how long is the love of Christ when we learn together. Help us to do those things, not because we must, but because we desire to please our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.